0: Uh, what we're going to do today is going to be not too much of the mass and the Bible. What I want to do is get in front of that and get underneath that. And uh, I think you'll just see what I'm doing and why as I go along. And I'll explain it, you know, as I go along. I want to read something here from a magazine that I subscribe to. It's First Things. It's a, a good magazine. It's a November 2023 issue of First Things. And uh, it's a magazine that is, it's uh, mainly a Catholic magazine. It's mostly Catholic, but they have articles from people of other faiths in here as well. So uh, it's a very interesting uh, magazine. They have things uh, from the Jewish side. They have uh, things from Protestants, so forth. And it keeps you up a lot on what's going on in the church. And uh, it sort of takes a very... <clears throat> conservative, I would guess, orthodox, traditional point of view. And here's an article that's by the editor of the magazine, R.R. Reno, and it's called The Great Forgetting. And uh, he says here, The rising generations of leaders know next to nothing about the great thinkers who have shaped our history. Who can blame them? They have been educated during the great forgetting we have embarked on a remarkable experiment, a society governed by those who have little knowledge of the humanities, which means no informed sense of who we are and where we come from. And he goes on and he says, it's interesting to note that the task of remembering is now largely taken up by religious people. And that would be you. Yes, there are secular folks who care about Virgil and Dante, and there are classical schools that are not religious, at least not officially. But for every non-religious individual or institution, there are nine, perhaps 99, motivated by religions of faith. Many classical charter schools are not allowed to promote religious identity, yet they are populated by religious people. After the collapse of the Roman authority in the western half of the empire, Christians, especially monks, preserved ancient learning against the darkness of an earlier season of forgetting. That pattern seems to be repeating itself. And when he talks about Christians here, he's talking about Catholics. It was a Catholic church that preserved western civilization when Rome fell. When Rome fell... Yes, there was a dark age, but that dark age was not a dark age of the church. That was a dark age because of the fall of the civilization of Rome. It was the Catholic Church that preserved that civilization and brought it back and gave us the civilization that we had today. So what I'm saying here and what this article is saying is that as Catholics, the history of our church— is the history, and effect, of Western civilization and who we are here in the United States and in almost all of Europe. And if you study the history of the Catholic Church, and if you understand where Scripture and the Mass came from, you're going to be understanding our whole civilization. And that's why it's so important not only to be a Christian, it's so important to be a Catholic and to be proud of the fact that you are a Catholic because you're standing at the very peak of Western civilization. And if you take a look at the world today, we're losing it. And if it's going to be preserved, it'll be preserved by religious people, because these are the people, you, who have an interest in these kind of things. The wisdom we need to govern our society and our souls addresses the full human condition, a richly varied reality, parts of which can be studied scientifically but the whole of which cannot be subsumed under a theory for this reason humanistic study is crucial for it plunges us into the stream of human endeavor speculation lament oh, sure. celebration and more <clears throat> a person educated in game theory or any theory or human motivation of action and socialized by social media is so removed from the breadth of human experience that good judgment about how to navigate through life becomes elusive. I'm not surprised, therefore, that mental illness and other dysfunctions are on the rise in our society, and that our institutions and political culture are eroding. These days, our institutions and sensibilities are not well trained by reality. As with the task of passing down cultural or inheritance, men and women of faith have an important role to play. Priests and pastors need to preserve the tangible reality of worship. Fortunately, the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist require the visible signs of water, bread, and wine. Of course, in the Mass, we get all of that. Hymns and songs are anchored in the human voice. But the potency of the real need to be embraced in every possible real but the potency of the real needs to be embraced in every possible way. <clears throat> the installation of screens of any sort in churches should be resisted. So I mean, that's something to consider what's going on in our churches today. Really? Processions should be emphasized. Christians should consider adopting the Jewish tradition, of asking all in attendance to sprinkle dirt after a casket is lowered into the grave. Our taste for reality needs to be engaged and trained so that we can taste and see the goodness of the Lord. And I think we do a lot of that in the Catholic Church. And uh, that's one of the reasons that Reno wrote this article. And the reason I'm reading it here is because we have to remember. I mean, you people are interested in in the uh, Bible and the Mass, and of course, the Mass is soaked in Scripture. The Mass is soaked in Scripture, and you know, you people are interested in the Mass. But uh, the thing we have to understand is that before we can rely on Scripture. We have to understand where it came from in the first place, and that's what I'm getting at here. We have to understand what underpins our whole society. It's the Christian religion that does, and it's the Catholic Church that developed the Christian religion. And uh, so I'm going to get into that just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> It's first things. It's a magazine, and it's a, a, mainly a Catholic mag- magazine. Uh, it incorporates articles from the Jewish tradition. It incorporates articles also from Protestantism. But it's written mostly from a Catholic point of view, and it's edited. The editor in it is R.R. Reno. Uh, they have a lot of writers in it that are good Catholic writers who write for various publications. And I would I would strongly recommend it. You learn a lot from it. Uh, But uh, what uh, I want to talk about here is that uh, you people, as religious people, interested in the Mass, and interested in the Mass in Scripture, are people that are, in effect, the rememberers and the keepers of Western civilization. And every one of you, I'm sure, is baptized into the Catholic Church or at least baptized into Christianity. And if you are, you are a priest. And you have a responsibility that is greater than just learning, you know, what we're going to learn here, what Tony is going to teach you and what my wife is going to help teach. And you're going to learn about Scripture, uh, you know, and the Mass, But uh, what we're going to do here today is we're going to get in front of that and we're going to learn actually where Scripture came from and, uh, you know, why you can rely on the idea of Scripture in the Mass. And uh, the the fact also that you people, in effect, become teachers of history and as priests in the Catholic Church, and every one of you is, uh, maybe not a vocational priest, but you are baptized into the Church, that... You have a great responsibility to actually pass on and hand on Catholicism to the next generation because not only do you have a responsibility to do that, but you are, when you do that, as I said before, you are handing on the history of Western civilization to a next generation. In that generation, in our colleges and universities, in our grade schools, if you're familiar with what's going on in a lot of the school systems, that generation is being deprived of their history. And if anybody is going to hang on to it and pass it on, it's going to be people like you. So you're a lot more important than you think you are. And uh, you know, if you're you're at the peak of Western civilization. I think our civilization is in a crisis. And it won't be the secular people that will get us out of that crisis. It'll be people like yourselves. You look in the mirror and you say to yourself, well, I'm just an ordinary person. But those ordinary persons are the persons that started your church and that handed on the Western civilization to you. And it's your responsibility to carry that on. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, William Faulkner, a writer, you know, an American writer, and he was from Oxford, Mississippi. And he taught at Ole Miss, and he wrote a lot about the South. Probably some of you have heard of him. And uh, he said, the past ain't dead. He said, hell, it ain't even past. And uh, it's not. I mean, take a look at what's going on right now. There's a war going on in Israel with Hamas. And if you look back in Scripture, you'll see that there was the same kind of thing going on way back at that time, and that same thing is carried right on into our civilization. So if you think about it, the only thing we have really is the past. That's my theory anyway. You may may think you live in the present, but you don't. You can't capture the present. As fast as you say now, it's already gone. And I mean, even the simplest animal has to have a memory and retain it, or it can't even find shelter from rain, or it can't find a hiding place from enemies or anything else, if it didn't have some kind of memory to retain what it has learned. And we see that also in the tragic case of people with Alzheimer's as their memory starts to go. So it is the past that, in effect, to some extent we all live in. I mean, technically, the light from you or from me going back and forth to us, by the time it gets to you, it's not the same thing as it started from me. And if you look at a star, you're looking at something that's there four years ago. You're not seeing it as it is right now. When you look at that wall, you're not seeing it. As fast as it gets here, there's still a delay between that time. So the fact is, is the past ain't dead. It ain't even past. And so it's important to understand history. And it's my opinion that a country without history in a country without religion isn't even a country anymore. And a pe- people without a history, something to hold them together, aren't even a people anymore. So that's why it's important for us as Catholics, especially because the Catholic Church handed down that history for 2,000 years unchanged. And we need to need to keep that up. Uh, Scott Hahn himself, if you read, you know, I'm sure you know, Tony will get to this later on, and so will my wife. Uh, would take the Bible, and he would go to people, to Catholics especially, and, and, and a lot of Protestants do this, and he would use the Bible. He would say, show me in the Bible where there is the mass, and most people couldn't do that, and because they couldn't do that, a lot of them were converted over to Protestantism, or maybe they lost their Catholic faith simply because It looked to them as if the Mass wasn't in Scripture. But the point is, is that what would would have been the easiest and the most simple thing for any of those people to do as a Catholic, even if they knew nothing about the Bible, can any of you here think of one question in just a couple of sentences that they could have asked Scott Hahn and stopped him in his tracks? Can anybody think of what they might have asked him? When he stood there with Scripture, and he,
1: mass was the
0: Bible? yeah, and he was asking where the mass was in the Bible. And suppose you didn't know a thing about the mass in the Bible. Suppose you didn't even know anything about Scripture. What's one thing as a Catholic you should know that you could have stopped him in his tracks? Can you think of it? mm Hmm. He got it, Tony. The thing is, you could have just asked him when he pulled out, let's say he pulled out Matthew, and he said, where is it in Matthew? Or let's say he pulled out any particular, uh, you know, reading or any particular part of the Bible, and he pulled it out, a part of Scripture. You could simply say, Scott, how do you know that Matthew belongs in Scripture? Who says so? How do you know that that book should be in there? How many books are in Scripture, Scott? 66? 73? Why not 65? Why not 82? How many, you know, how many, does it say anywhere in Scripture that there are 66 books? That's the Protestants of Scripture. They they look at it as 66. Are there any places in Scripture where it says 73? You could have floored him in his tracks simply by saying, how do you even know what scripture is? Anybody could write a book and say, on every page, this book is inspired. That's the second question you could ask them. How do you know that that's inspired? Who says so? Suppose the Mass is in scripture. So what? Does that make the Mass valid just because it's in scripture? How do you know the scripture is accurate? How do you know where it came from? And the thing is, is for a Protestant, there really isn't any good way for them to answer you. Because it was the Catholic Church that gave us Scripture. And if the Catholic Church isn't the right church or the true church, and it says Scripture is inspired, then Scripture isn't inspired, is it? If it is inspired, then Catholic, the Catholic Church has to be the believable church. Because that's where the mass came from. And we can show that in scripture itself. Jesus, for example, took out his his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and that is a place right along the Jordan River. On one side is a huge cliff, and there are it's all rock, and the cliffs quite high. I think about three hundred feet or so, or maybe a little bit higher than that, maybe around five hundred. And on the other side where they were, there's all kinds of caves, or there were back at that time, and springs came out of those caves, and there was holes going out into the ground there. It was a scary place. And when the disciples were taken out there, they knew he wasn't taking them out there just for some kind of a tour of the Jordan River. I mean, pagans worshipped at these holes. People thought that they went all the way down to the gates of hell and so forth. And that's where he took them out. And when he gets out there, he asked them, he says, who who do the people say that I am? And they answered. Some of them said, well, some people say, Jeremiah. Some other people say, you're one of the prophets. And then he turned to Simon Bar-Jonah. And he said, Simon Bar-Jonah, who do you say that I am? And Simon Bar-Jonah said, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven did. And then he says something that stunned even the disciples themselves. He said, you are a rock. Now, among those people, you could be called, a number of things you could call, some of the women were named you, you could be called bee you could be named after an animal and so forth maybe wolf and all those things but nobody, nobody except God was called rock and he said it in Aramaic sometimes our Protestant friends will say that well he 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 said that he was just a little pebble he wasn't didn't wasn't really rock but the thing is is he spoke Aramaic and in an Aramaic he used the word kepha K-E-P-H-A, it's translated into Greek as Cephas. That's what Peter's name was in Greek, was Cephas or Kepha in Aramaic, rock. And the disciples were stunned because you don't call anybody in Judaism and Hebrew rock. That was reserved for God alone. And he said, you are a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he told the rest of the disciples the same thing. He said, he told them, you. And he said, whatever you, meaning all of them, bind in heaven, or bind on earth, rather, will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you allow on earth uh, will be allowed in heaven. And he said, whoever hears you, hears me. And whoever hears me, hears the one who sent me. And whoever doesn't listen to me, you know, is anathema. (laughs) So, this is what he does. We have that in Scripture itself. But the point is, is that we don't even start there. When we look at Scripture as a Catholic, we start out looking at Scripture as if it simply is a historical uh, piece of literature, a piece of literature. And we look at at how, how uh, valid that is and, and how historical it is. And we can look at it, and we have probably in the Bible more pieces of ancient literature going back almost to the time that it was written than we do of any other piece of literature that we have. I majored in literature in college and I taught literature and I taught English in, in high school for a while and so forth. But the fact is, is if you look at all of the ancient writers that we take for granted and that we Aristotle, Plato, all of these, and that we understand we don't have anywhere near as many manuscripts of these people as we do of the Bible. We don't have anywhere near as many as manuscripts of these people they go back all the way to almost to the time when they were alive. I think the best manuscript we have is of Virgil, and that, that manuscript is about 250 years after the time that Virgil died. So, in other words, Virgil dies, we have a manuscript that survived 250 years later, and that's the manuscript that tells us about Virgil. Yet, well, at least when I was in school, I don't know about now, but when I was in school, if you went to the humanities courses, and studied, and you learned about Virgil, everything we know about Virgil, we take from that manuscript, and we consider that manuscript reliable and true. Just imagine how much more reliable we have manuscripts of the Bible and how much more reliable they are, because not only do we have manuscripts, we have lots of them on different languages. We can compare all the various manuscripts going back and get a good idea of what they agree and disagree on and get a really good idea of what they say, and we can look at the history and see that a lot of them are verified by actual history in other places. We can get other historians that talk about the same things that we find in Scripture, and we're finding more and more of that today. More and more things are being uncovered. It's more and more reliable. So that's how we take it, and that's how we start And then we go on and we say, okay, we've got good manuscripts. We've got the story of Jesus going back. And then we take a look at it and we say, is Jesus who he said he was? If he wasn't who he said he was, it's like Paul said, you know, we are all all in very sad shape if he wasn't. But we can look back and we can see all of the things that happened in great detail. And we can say that Jesus either is who he said he was or he's a madman. But if you look and study his whole life, he's not a madman. And then if you look at all, all of the people that verify who saw him after he was died, we have about, I think, around 500, something like that, to testify that they saw this man back alive. We have the story of the tomb. We have people that stuck to that story even though they were tortured and killed by the Romans, what would they do it for if it was some kind of a hoax? I mean, you don't perpetuate a hoax unless you got something to gain by it, and <laughs> you don't get tortured and go to death and everything and so forth. So, if you study the whole thing, it's reasonable to believe Jesus who is who he said he was. So, if he's who he said he was, what did he do? That's what we have to ask. What? did he do, we, who he said he was? We can rely on who he said he was, and we do as Catholics. And he said he would start a church. He told the, uh, Peter, he told Simon Bar-Jonah, before he named him Peter. Peter means rock. Before he named Peter, he called him Kepha at first. That means rock in Aramaic. He says, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then what did he do? When he was going to go away, he's going to go away, and the disciples are confused, and they're scared. I mean, you know, they got Rome to deal with and everything else. They're scared, and it's like, you know, what will he do when, when he goes away? And he tells them, uh, does, does he give them a Bible? Does he say, here, here's a Bible? And everything in there is that you need to know is right there in that book. That book is our instruction book. Go out and give it to everybody. Is that what he told him? <laughs> no, he didn't. He says, Go out into the world and teach everything I have commanded you, and I will send the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete, to guide you. That's what he does. So he founds a church. And we know who he is, who he says he is, because we can study all the history of it and we agree on that. So if he founded the church and he sends that church out into the world and says the gates of hell will not prevail against it, will that church go off the rails? No. <laughs> will that church teach error? No. And if that church writes down the scripture, which was 10 years before they even started writing anything down, can we believe it? Yeah. So Scott Hahn is right when he says the scripture is inspired. Scott Hahn is right when he says that the scripture is believable and true. The one thing, and this is of course before he became a Catholic, the one thing he wasn't right about was he had no way, no way of verifying that Scripture was true or inspired unless he credited the Catholic Church with what it says it is, the church that Christ founded. And that's you know how we got the Catholic Church, and that's how we know in the first place what scripture is and why scripture is true and why scripture is believable and without the catholic church there simply isn't any way to know in other words if we didn't have the catholic church we couldn't be sure that just because the bible was in scripture that that was believable we could say so what and the thing is is because we have the catholic church if the bible wasn't in scripture It is. Of course, Tony and Lynn will show you that it is as they go along here in the next sessions and so forth. We'll show you what it is. But the fact is, is that if the Bible wasn't in Scripture, it wouldn't make any difference if we have the Catholic Church, because there isn't anywhere in Scripture that says everything has to be in Scripture. So if a Protestant or a secularist or anybody plunks down Scripture to you, and says, show me where X, Y, or Z is in Scripture, the first thing to ask him is, why do you think that something has to be in Scripture in order for it for to be a part of Christianity? But they will come back and say to you, the important things in
1: Scripture.
0: The thing is, is that if you have 35,000 different pro- Protestant denominations, and you do, then which are things are important? Tell me which ones are important. Every single church in Protestantism has got something that's important that's different from the other church. So how come you people can't agree? And the thing is, is that it Protestants often will say, and I'm not trying to knock Protestants here, I'm just saying, I'm just showing the fact is, is that they are right about Scripture and so forth, but they are right for the wrong reasons. If it wasn't for the Catholic Church, they wouldn't have scripture. If there wasn't for the Catholic Church, they wouldn't know Scripture that was uh, was uh, inspired. Uh, but the fact is, is that they have no good way of coming to any conclusion that Scripture is what it says it is or it's inspired. I mean, you'll get some and they'll say, well, you read Scripture and it's inspiring. Well, that's sort of like going in the circle, isn't it? I mean, Scripture is inspiring because it's Scripture and the Scripture because it's inspiring. You know, or Scripture is inspiring because it's inspirational, and it's inspirational because it's inspiring. It's just going in a circle, a dog chasing his tail. So the fact is, is that without the Catholic Church, with a starting point, you can't know that Scripture is what it says it is. You can't know that it's real. You can't know that it's true. So the, the, the fact is, is that they simply, you know, a Protestant has simply no good way. And on, on the second thing is, is that where does it say in Scripture that Scripture alone is the Word of God? Catholics believe Scripture is the Word of God, but they don't believe that Scripture alone is the Word of God. We believe that the tradition that Jesus Christ handed down, he taught and showed in in. in taught and showed by showing and doing he taught that's how he taught in a very sacred way for three and a half years he didn't write anything down the only time he wrote anything that i'm aware of is when he was writing in the sand when they were going to stone mary magdalene they were going to stone her to death for prostitution and uh he was writing in the sand i don't know what he wrote Maybe he was writing down the names of some of those people that visited Mary Magdalene. That could have been one of the things he was doing. And when they saw that, they had second thoughts. And then he said, whoever is, you know, without sin among you, you throw the first stone. But the thing is, he didn't write anything down. He established a church. And a good question to ask anybody is, did Jesus Christ, uh, when he went away, when he left the disciples, Did he leave them any means by which to hand on Christianity? And if so, what was that means? And, of course, they're going to have a hard time trying to answer that question, but you can answer it and say, yes, sure, he left the means. He left the church. He started his church, and he gave us uh, all the ornaments that we find in the church today, and pope and disciples and priests and so forth. And we still have all of that today. So uh, that's basically what I wanted to get at first here. I'm going to go on in a little bit more uh, on what uh, we find in the Catholic Church that you also find in Scripture, and I'll get to that in a minute. But I just wanted to establish that, the idea that before you even come to this study and want to know all about uh the mass in Scripture, and of course, you know, the mass is soaked in Scripture, and we'll we'll get to that, and Tony, I'm sure, will later on. But the point is, is before we can believe Scripture, and before it makes any difference whether it's something's in or not in Scripture, we have to know that Scripture is inspired, that Scripture is true, and there's only one way to know that. And it's the same thing that Saint Augustine said, you know, a long, long, long time ago, back to about the the third century, I think it was, when he said it. And he said, "I would not believe a word of the gospel if it wasn't for the fact that the Catholic Church tells me that it is so." And that's what we as Catholics understand too. And without that, there isn't any good way for anybody to understand the truth of Scripture at all. So I'll stop here, and we'll take a little break. Anybody have questions that we, you to like to ask or any comments you want to make?
1: Oh, well, I, I do write a lot of things down. Most people couldn't I have thought. And, like, uh, and And everything that Christ said, he sent them out to teach. Exactly. And they taught by like, word of mouth. They went down to told to all the things that he said.
0: Exactly. Eventually, about 10 years later, they started to write the things down and put them down. A lot of the apostles were still alive when this was going on. And we don't see any of those apostles objecting to a lot of the things that our Protestant friends object to in the Catholic Church. They objected. I mean, Paul wrote letters and so forth to churches and said, you know, you're. Doing this wrong. You're not paying enough attention. You're, you're, you're becoming too lax and so forth in church. And we could write a lot of those letters today. The church always needs reforming. <laughs> it's always being reformed. And by the way, I can't get into it here, but the, the Reformation, when it happened, it wasn't the Reformation wasn't re, didn't start because of corruption in the Catholic Church. There was corruption, of course, and there is now. there's corruption in human society human Mm -hmm. beings are sinners so there's Mm -hmm. going to be corruption but actually the Reformation started a couple hundred years before Luther came along the Reformation actually started in the Catholic Church itself and it finished in the Catholic Church the Council of Trent I I think uh, went on from about the time of Luther when when Luther was about 1511 something like that uh, when Luther was Preaching and people were changing over. It wouldn't have been for Henry the Eighth, though the whole Lutheran revolution would, would have just fallen fall apart. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. It wouldn't have changed things. It was Henry the Eighth leaving the church that really made the big difference. The two of them together is what what did. Won't get into that now. But the thing is, is that uh, the you uh, know uh, I lost my train of thought, but, but uh at any rate, she is right. The church started by showing and doing, by going out and teaching. Christ sent them out. And the fact is, is that most people wouldn't have been able to read and write. If they didn't hear the word preached, they would not have, and they wouldn't have gotten it. And then. Probably by on the Jewish
1: church, they, they weren't given out there
0: no, in Bibles, Bibles, when Bibles started to come into existence, you know, when, when the, the readings that we have to understand, when there were readings, there were all, you, when Christianity started to boil, it boiled, boiled out, you know, out of uh, the Holy Land and so forth and started spreading all over around the Mediterranean and so forth, lots of fakers, you know, tried to use Christianity to advance their own various causes just like people do today. And the church had to sort all that out. There was about 150 different writings circulating around. And uh, some of them were plain false and just scams and so forth, like we have today, trying to use Christianity to advance their own causes. A bunch of others were okay writings and stuff like that. But were they inspired? The church had to decide. So the church had to take those and decide which ones were inspired. They did it mostly by were they apostolic? Did they go back to the time of the apostles? And that's you know basically how they did it. This is a a good book here to read if you want to read. It's by what authority? And any evangelical discovers Catholic tradition, and it's a uh, Catholic tradition that is handed on. And actually verifies, you know, all, all of this. And a lot of times you'll hear Protestants say, uh, in the scripture itself condemns tradition, and it does, but it doesn't condemn sacred tradition. Sure. Christ condemns the tradition of men, is yeah. what he's condemning there. He's condemning tradition that's simply made up by some of these fakers and other traditions that are made up that are just ordinary traditions that are being misused. Uh, Actually, when he condemns it, uh, the the, uh, people say, but what about, you know, Christ says uh, a lot of these Pharisees and so forth are leading you astray, and they say, and 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 some of the people say, but what about when they're sitting, you know, on, on their seats in the temple, on their temple seats? And Christ says, when they're sitting on their temple seats, he said, do what they say but not what they do because they're hypocrites. So Christ himself recognized sacred tradition when they were sitting on their temple seats. Those were cathedra, the chairs, the seats of authority. And we still have ex-cathedra today from the chair in our Catholic church. Does that mean that the Pope has to be sitting on a chair? (laughs) No, I mean, no more than a judge. When he gives a, a a ruling from the bench, he doesn't have to be sitting on a bench. He might be down on a john taking a pee or something like that, and he could give a ruling, and it still counts. It's called a ruling from the bench, and so uh, tradition is, you know, sacred, and the sacred tradition is an entirely different than the tradition of men, which Christ was condemning in some cases, not all cases. We all have our traditions of in with that small t. I mean, they can be changed, you know, what priests wear and so forth and everything and can be changed. And so
2: I think I think it's important to point out that, you know, like you said earlier that Jesus um said that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. And I believe that. But that implies that the gates of hell is going to be attacking the church in all kinds of ways. And I think that's what happens, you know, where people uh, need to remember when um, something's going on that doesn't seem right. It's probably, um, you know, an attack by Satan. And, and so that's, is that you think that's, I mean, that's what i was
0: thinking that that's very true i mean you know go ahead that
1: that what goes on in the catholic church is reflected by what's going on in society. the church has been in different trouble for centuries centuries forever i mean we're studying um i did a bible study on monday morning and we're doing um true reformers from the Austrian Institute. We have uh, six people that were key during the Reformation. Then one we did the other day was on St. Charles Borromeo, and he was talking about all of the, the things in the Catholic Church that were not right, that were going on, and that was his mission, was to change those things. He was concerned with the saving of souls, and he, He's had uh, his main thing with it. We can't do that unless we start. You know, bishops have to live in their diocese and have tough uh, moral sex and all kinds of things. And those were the things that he addressed. Well, today we're addressing some of the same problems that he was. That was during the Council of Trent. And it, it's the same problem some of them today.
0: Shows you human nature doesn't change. We, we all suffer from concupiscence the tendency to go downhill i <laughs> mean you know we are and
1: it has shown up in our churches
0: it will and look at the uh, saint athanasius i don't know you know athanasius contra mundum athanasius against the world you had the arian heresy you had a priest from egypt in arius Who insisted that Christ was not, uh, you know, God in the same sense as the Father was? He said that, you know, there was a time when he was not. And there was this idea that Christ was the greatest of creatures, but nevertheless, he was still a creature. And that heresy lasted for about 300 years. Athanasius was against it, Constantine was sort of like, wanted some kind of a compromise on the whole thing. Constantine just wanted things to settle down. He didn't want a lot of trouble in the church. <laughs> you know, He made uh, Christianity legal and so forth, and he even gave property and all of that for the church and so on. But he wanted the church to keep the empire, I mean, to keep things together. And so uh, he didn't like Athanasius going around opposing that heresy, so Athanasius got uh exiled to France France at that time was nothing but a wilderness and at the, at the, but Athanasius never gave up now he died and so forth and everything but nevertheless his Legacy lived on and Aryan heresy was finally overturned and uh, right right and still, oh sure but the fact is is the church certainly doesn't incorporate it or teach it you know it, it's refuted it and the church corrected it and that's another thing we can tell our process friends. There are so many things they charge the church with. And if you go back in history and look, it was the church actually that came out and ended a lot of those, those heresies. Uh if you look at the the Eucharist, for example, uh you can find back in you know that the idea somebody like Scott Hahn, before he was a Catholic, uh Scott would have thought that uh, the mass was the biggest blasphemy in Christianity, that it was you know the mass was a total blasphemy. In fact, if you read The Lamb's Supper, and uh, you should, if you have a chance and I got to hear somewhere. yeah, The Lamb's Supper, a book by Scott Hahn, read it. He will tells you about how he finally went to when he began to find out, you know more and more, That the ancient church had a lot of Catholicism and things that were Catholic. And he decided to go to a mask and mass. And he sat there, sort of holding on to the bench like this. You know, he's not going to be lured into this blasphemous stuff. Everything until he sat there and he was a very good biblical scholar. And He realized the math was just just soaked in scripture. He wanted to jump up and tell everybody, do you know where we're at? This is this and this is that and this is this. Oh my god, this is great, you know, because he was realizing that everything in the mass was reflected in scripture. But the point is, is that uh before that Scott thought that the mass was the most blasphemous thing, you know, that you could uh you could attend in the- This was by like him. By what? This one, Mark Shea. What authority? No. Oh, okay. I I understand. You know, now I got it. Yeah. You're talking about where we got the Bible by Graham. Yeah. Yeah, that's him. And you should read was this too.
1: Presbyterian
0: minister, mm-hmm. and so was Yeah. His yeah, he's born in
1: 1874. Yeah, and he, but he was so interested. He had a friend who was at and he was so interested in the Catholic church. And he would go and just, you know, he'd go to mass and just listen and listen to me. He's like, you know, when it comes to the church I'm I'm involved in that now, if if you've got this preacher, he preaches it this way. If you've got this preacher, he preaches it that way. And that's all within the same church. And he said, "But you go to the Catholic mass and it is the same story every time and the scripture that's in the mass of what they're what they're doing in the rest
0: of the mass and keep paying uh yeah i'm trying to trying to remember who was it that said back around i think the third century or it was like 250 a.d right around in there we have the first reference to catholicism the first use of the word catholic that we probably was used long before that but the first one we can written down, one that we can find. And uh, I can't remember who it was, but he was saying, you know, like, go to any place in any country. He was talking about around the Mediterranean all around. It was all Catholic back at that time. The Muslims had not taken over and pushed anywhere as far north as they have now. And he said, go, you know, to any town or city or, co- you know, country. And ask where the bishop is, and that's where you'll find the Catholic church, you know, where the bishop is. And the whole idea, Catholic, you know, meant universal. And what he was referring to was is that no matter where you go, when you walk into that church, you're going to be getting the same gospel and everything on the same day, the same thing. It's all going to be, you know, and just imagine how far those people had to travel to go to those conferences and stuff to keep all that together. And they did all that, you know, either by horse or on foot. I mean, Charles, yeah.
1: He was sent to Milan and he had that diocese of eight hundred churches, plus chapels, plus a few of the villages that were surrounding the diocese. He was responsible for all. And he visited each one at least twice during his life.
0: Yeah.
1: And he figured how no long it took to travel to all those places.
0: But that's, you know, what I'm hoping to get at here is, like I said, I hope you're not disappointed because we're not talking about the Mass in this introduction that I'm giving here, uh, in, you know, in, in uh, the Bible, you know, where the Mass is. But the fact is, is that we are establishing that we can rely on the Bible. When we read it, we as Catholics know that it is the truth, know that it is inspired. We know it's inspired because... It's the church that made the Bible. And it's the church that gave the Bible to the world. It's the church that preserved it for 2000 years. It's the church that had the monks and so forth when civilization was falling apart that sat in those, 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 uh, what do they call them? The, I'm trying to think of the, the scriptoriums that sat in the scriptorium, writing out scripture in the cold and dark. If, You look at some of those old manuscripts and stuff sometimes they wrote in the margins and so forth little poems and things about pray for this you know (laughs) this poor cold monk sitting here you know with his fingers froze and his eyes strained and everything writing down all this stuff and passing it on handing it on writing down scripture oh god and that's why those books were so expensive that even if the people could read, they wouldn't have been able to afford a Bible because the churches would, the Protestants accused the Catholic Church of having the Bible locked up. Yes, it did. It would happen in a big iron, you know. Remember how the phone books, everybody here remembers how the phone books used to be in phone booths when we still had them. You know, they were in that metal thing like, and they were chained in there, you know, people could still clip them off. But the Bibles were kept like that. People could that could read could go up there and they could open the book and read for themselves and then they would write down, you know, the very favorite passage. Even people that couldn't read would have on their walls in their house a favorite passage from the Bible, and it would be done. Uh, my wife knows the name of the what you how you do that stuff, you know, you know like you got burlap, you know, and then you put all the different colored threads in it, and then you have it written out, and then they put it in a little wood frame, maybe, and everything hanging on their wall. and all Yeah, even if they couldn't read and write, they would have that hanging up there, and they would know by heart. They would be able to read it. They wouldn't be able to read, but they'd know what it said by heart. They would know it, and they would show that, you know, when people came in, it'd be there for all their friends and everything else. They knew Scripture. Believe me, they knew it. Uh, priests were tested, this idea that The the priests were dumbbells and stuff, you know, that you get charges from uh, seculars and from Protestants and so forth that they didn't know. Oh, yes, they did. They were tested and everything else. You can look at some of those old sermons and everything. You'd be amazed at the references they make in them. Now, those people, if they didn't know Scripture, they wouldn't know what the hell was going on when they went to church. But they knew. (laughs) They knew what was going on. Yeah, it did. It
1: didn't.
0: sure did. It didn't necessarily make make. Yeah. The first. Word, uh, they knew what all that stuff meant. We don't. We don't know what. But they knew what every sign and symbol meant. You know, just like you know when you see a shoe hanging from a sign in front of a building, you know that's a shoemaker. You know, or something like that, or you know, you know. Uh, Barbershop with the barber pool. They had signs for all that stuff, and the people knew what all the signs were. So they could look, they could, they, they knew when they went to church, they looked at all that, they knew all the stories. They were probably better educated about their church and their faith and what went on and everything than we are today.
1: The first reference we have in writing about Mass was from 155. By Justin Martyr and he he uh, went through with the whole, and it hasn't changed. One hundred fifty-five years after Christ died. Well, it's been looked at. And it's, it's still basic, found yeah. to be basically kept And you know, you couldn't expect to see it as glorified as it is now. But the basics were there.
0: Yeah. Basics were there. But th- th- this is a real good book, Where We Got the Bible by Henry Graham, if you ever have a chance. It's a, it's a short book. Actually, the last part of this book about the, uh, this stick or so is actually all about the the author himself. So the, actually, the part about how we got the Bible is only about this, this stick right here. It's really easy to read. Uh, yeah. what what gets me about this is that you'll find priests that will you know, that th- one of the things that bothers me about a lot of uh, our clergy and, and, and churches that 25, 30, 40 years ago there was this big emphasis on ecu- ecumenical you know, ecumenism and so like any defense of the faith that had any kind of liveliness to it, you know, or any uh, grit to it, was considered a lot of times, you know, polemical. That is considered antagonistic and stuff, and it was discouraged. And uh, this book, sometimes by older priests, will say, "Well, this is a polemical book," you know, because it it is it is refuting a lot of Protestant attacks on the church. I don't think it's polemical. You know, I don't think it's antagonistic. Uh, it's just a good defense of our faith. And is simply stating what the facts are. I mean, and you know, there isn't any reason that we should be ashamed of defending our faith and saying what the facts are. And when people get it wrong, and uh, it's not likely that uh, you're going to drive somebody away from the church, you don't have to come out and be mean about it, but you just tell the truth. And uh, this is a, on How We Got Our Debt to the Catholic Church by Henry Graham. And he does such a good job, of, you know, of uh, giving the arguments, explaining and so forth. So I would recommend that book. This is another good one, Mark Shea, By What Authority? An Evangelical Discovers Catholic Tradition. Because if you don't have this, I mean, what I'm saying here is, is that you not only need to know what's in the Bible, and you not only need to know that the Mass is there, you need to know that the Bible— is believable simply because the Catholic Church says so, because the Catholic Church has that authority because it got it from Jesus Christ. If he's who he says he was, that's what he did. He formed a church, and he said it wouldn't get the... Uh, and when when uh, Protestants... There's two, two arguments against the church. One is that, uh, you know, that the Bible alone is the Word of God. Some Protestants will admit that you know, the Catholic church got the Bible right. And so they will say, you're right. The authority of the Bible comes from originally from Jesus Christ. And he started a church. And so forth. that church went off the rails. They call it the pagan convert theory. They say under Constantine, all kinds of pagans started coming into the church and they paganized the Catholic church and that they sort of like, it's sort of like covering up a fire with straw, with wet straw. The fire is still under their smoldering. But the Catholic Church got so bogged down with a whole jumble of medieval and uh, pagan superstition that the real gospel and the real truth to Christ is buried. And uh, you know the Protestant Re- Reformation had to rediscover it all and bring it out. The only problem with that is, is like Henry Newman. If you read him, Cardinal Newman, uh, he was an Anglican cardinal. And he subscribed to that theory until he started going back in the history and reading the whole history of the church, looking to see which century the church went off the rails in. He was looking, you know, where did it go wrong? Well, he goes back, you know, 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, 500 years back. He's back to the 4th century, the 3rd century, the 2nd century, and it suddenly dawns on him. It didn't go off the rails. In other words, it's the same church as it was when it started. It handed on that tradition for 2,000 years. And uh, that's when he converted to Catholicism. He became a Catholic. And he writes on the development of doctrine, how the Catholic Church developed doctrine. And he understands doctrine can be expanded and understood more clearly but it can't be changed In other words, what was
2: that what was that other book you said not mark Shea, the other one
0: uh, uh where we got the yeah. bible henry, yeah, graham. We, henry graham,
2: graham henry what
0: henry graham g r a h a m henry okay. graham I keep forgetting to look up at the camera <laughs> i hear your your voice is behind me <laughs> yeah yeah and uh here's another good one how the Catholic Church built western civilization and that's by uh thomas e woods jr that's a re- it's an easy one to read and uh yeah i've read it a lot. I use it for r c i a my my wife and I used to teach r c i a back when we were young. <laughs> this is a good one. Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist by Brand uh Brant Petrie. That's a that's a Jewish roots of the Eucharist by Brant Petrie P I T R E. That's a good one. Very, very good one. This talks a lot about Melchizedek and so forth. You under you learn and hear. Uh, that Christ, you know, he would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which means he would be a priest in the manner of Melchizedek. There weren't orders back then. And who was Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek was the the uh, king that offered bread and wine as a sacrifice for Abraham. Yeah. And the thing is, is Melchizedek means king of righteousness. It also can mean king of peace it can be interpreted in different ways and uh, Jesus of course is going to be the prince of peace and uh, Jesus traces himself back in effect uh, through David from Melchizedek because David was a king in the order and manner of Melchizedek and who was Melchizedek probably he was Shem one of the sons of Noah that's probably who he was we're not Mm -hmm. sure but the thing is, is Jesus, if you look in math, you, he's walking through the wheat field, if you remember. And the uh, hemen is men, it's a Sabbath, and the men are picking the grains of wheat and eating it. And the Pharisees call attention to it. And Jesus tells Jesus tells them, the Pharisees, he said, David, you know, went into the temple on the Sabbath. And ate the bread of the temple on a Sabbath. And he didn't just eat the regular bread. He ate what was called the bread of the presence or the show bread. This was a bread that the priests would make on a special day. on the, And they would show it actually once in a while. The people would get to come into the temple and the priest would show them the bread and say, this is God's love for you. They called it the show bread or the bread of the presence. And Jesus said that David went in there on a Sabbath day and against the you know rules of the Sabbath, profane the Sabbath, but yet he didn't commit any sin in doing so. Why not? Because David was a priest, a priest in the manner of Melchizedek. And it says, if you read scripture, that Melchizedek would be a priest forever and he would pass on the priesthood forever. And so Melchizedek David did not have to be a Levite priest, Levite priest, and neither did Jesus have to be a Levite priest. Because remember, the priesthood was taken away from the Jews when they uh, worshipped the golden calf, and they were punished. And then it was reestablished under the Levins, the Levites, the Levite priesthood. But Jesus wasn't of that order. He was the order of David. But David went back to Melchizedek. And it's right in Scripture that Melchizedek would be a priest forever. And so he tells the Pharisees he could eat and his men could eat the wheat as as David did as long as the men had, had been kept chaste during they were on a military expedition. And on a military expedition, they were not allowed to be with women. And so they were kept chaste. They could go in the temple. They could eat the meat and then I mean, eat the eat the bread. And then the Pharisees say, yeah, but that was in the temple. And so what does Jesus say? He said, there's something greater than the temple here. And the Pharisees didn't know what to say. It was like, what? Nothing could be greater than the temple. But there's a prediction right there. He's going to build a temple, rebuild it in three days. So, you know, everything he did, he could defend. And we can defend our faith.
1: There's so much tradition. I don't know. Is Was the king of Bethlehem? Uh, no, after no, king, he was, he was,
0: no, he's the king of Salem. He was the king of Salem. And then, of course, Jesus is from Jerusalem. And uh, what is, that means. Uh the the you know the place of peace, the Prince of Peace.
1: It's after seven thirty. Are we gonna I, I get to listen to Scott Hahn a little bit?
3: We'll, we'll, start, yeah. we'll start Scott Hahn next week. <clears throat> everybody yeah, everybody that's listening, you have a book. You have a, a leader or not a leader, Scott. you have a, a workbook. <laughs>
1: A workbook anybody that's listening.
0: <laughs> do you have a workbook? I have a workbook. Okay. Okay. No, I'm not going to do Scott on tonight, so I don't know, um, Tony.
1: Oh, we're not going to f- have a video.
0: Okay. No,
2: not tonight. Is this? Is this the book we're working out of?
0: Yeah, yes.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. From one of my friends. Who knows I'm Catholic? <laughs> and he um, says that he's forwarding, forwarding this book to all of his Catholic friends. And um, ex-Catholic exposes the teachings of the Catholic Church. And, uh, what it's supposed to be is all the, all the heresies of the Catholic church. And I, and I, and there's a video that comes with it. And I told him, told him that I don't listen to those. The first person to talk to about a former believer is a former believer. Because uh-huh. he has an extra and I know he's an ex Catholic. Uh-huh. So he says, I, and one who has an axe to grind. Thanks for defining my motivation. If you would provide me with your mailing address, I don't know what it'll be. I mean, because it doesn't sound like it. I'd like to send you a small book of, that's documenting the many anti biblical heresies mm-hmm. that are found with the Roman Catholicism.
0: Well, if you're, if you're, there are a lot of, uh, the the most, say, anti-Catholic people are former Catholics because they all have an axe to grind against the church. And uh, (laughs) like uh, like out here at that White Oak Bible Church, for example, probably a lot of the people out there are are ex-Catholics that are out there. The thing is, is that most of them are not catechized. That's the problem. That's another problem that I was going to talk about tonight is that the The church needs to spend a lot more time in my opinion on apologetics, but they yes. sort of, they sort of dropped it like somehow or another apologetics is boring and uh you know it's uh not any and you know, it's polemical and it just drives people in a away that's not true. Most people will leave the church because they have some kind of a, a you know a, a bone to pick with it uh, somebody a priest did something wrong or there's something that they're unhappy about, but the reason they stay away and then they, they, they become anti-Catholic is they start reading anti-Catholic doctrine. And if they don't know the doctrine of the Catholic Church and can't defend it, they'll fall for all of that stuff because it's so easy to do. You can take scripture, you can take any book, and you can make it say whatever you want. It's easy enough to do. It's called, and this is what a lot of Protestants do, and that's exactly how they prove that the Bible, you know, is the word of God is proof texting. In other words, they already believe something in the first place. You know, we believe X, we believe Y, or we believe Z, right? And then we grab a book and we look in that book until we find something that shows in our mind, at least that what we believe is true. And then we interpret it that way, and then we run to somebody and say, see, it says right there. You know, they'll they'll refer, like, say, the Bible is all you need to be a perfect Christian. It says it right in 2 Timothy 3.16, you know, that the Bible is useful uh, for uh, script, for, you know, study and so forth and everything, to be a, you know, a, a perfect child of God in every way. Well, you can say that about fireman's boots. Fireman's boots and a fireman's hat is useful to be a perfect fireman in every way. Does that mean all you need is fireman's boots and a fireman's hat? No. It's just that it's useful. The problem also with 2 Timothy 3.16, and they use that a lot, is that it's referring to what scripture? Is it referring to the New Testament? When did Timothy and Paul live? No, it's referring to the Old Testament. If the Protestants were right about it, it'd <laughs> be saying too much. It would be saying that all you need is the Old Testament to be a good Christian. You know, and so the fact is, is that all of those things can be shown to be the falsities that they are if you understand where they're coming from. It's easy to take the Bible and show, uh, you know, they can say simple stuff like, uh, call no man on earth your father. You know, we call priest's father. says it right in the Bible. So what? Go back and see what the word is back there in the Bible. It's doctor and what that word means. It just means teacher in general. And Paul is talking in a particular book in the Bible about a particular problem and a particular thing. And he's saying, don't in the fact listen to some of these false prophets or these Pharisees that make themselves the only authority that there is you know, and that's the word he's using and is referring to it in that context, in that context only. He's not saying you can't call your dad dad. (laughs) And the fact is, if you read in Scripture, Paul calls himself a father to his, you know, his uh, disciples and so forth, I mean, his listeners and everything. And you see that a lot in other places in Scripture as well. So you can make a book, say anything you want it to. That's why you have to vet the Bible by the fact that it was started by Jesus Christ himself, and you got to prove who he is in the first place before you can even believe the Bible. You can't put a book in the dock, you know, in court, and ask it questions. And then this idea of people that say, well, the Bible, you have to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. No, a book can't interpret itself. All they're saying there is that keep things in context. And that's better than reading things out of context, but it still isn't proving anything. So a book just can't prove itself. Anybody.
2: What's the the title of the Henry Graham book? What's that title again?
0: It's where we got the Bible.
2: Okay. Thank you.
0: Here's another one. That's a really good one. Uh, do I have it here? I'm looking for it. Maybe I didn't get it out of. Oh, here. This is a great. This is a great book. Triumph. It's uh, it only 500 pages. That may sound like a lot, but it condenses the whole history of the church in 500 pages. And man, are they hard hitting pages.
3: Triumph.
0: Triumph. Just triumph. Okay.
3: The looks
0: like Trump. the power and the glory of the Catholic Church by HW Crocker the really second or crazy. the third I'm sorry HW Crocker the yeah, third and it it is hard hitting it's exciting I mean it's a great read I mean it shows the people as they really were uh the characters and so forth I mean when you read uh you know about the uh, Knights Templar and stuff like that you can smell these guys. I mean, you can smell the sweat on them. You can see their muscles. You can see the strength. You can see them swear and everything else and stuff like that. I mean, these are men. And, uh, you know, this this stuff that they did, the battles, all of this, you, you know, you can concertine in, in, in the beginning, the battles, you know, with Rome and everything else. Uh, it comes alive. It really does. He's a guy's a great writer. By what and evangelical discovers Catholic tradition? Okay. Because without tradition, you know, you can't. I mean, it's a Catholic tradition that's been handed on. That's what tradition means to hand down. Catholic and
1: fundamentalism.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. So by heating. That's got a lot. of This mm-hmm. Catholicism and fundamentalism. The the attack on yeah. Here's what you need to answer your friend. The attack on Roman, but he's got every single just about you can think of attack on the Catholic Church by using scripture you know, the various attacks and everything by all the various Protestants and so forth and and, uh, the answer to all of those
2: Who's the author of
0: that? It's Carl Keating and it's by Ignatius It's too bad we don't have the bookstore anymore How do you
2: spell his name?
0: it's uh A-E-A-T-I-N-G. yeah k yeah k e a t i n g carl with the k k r l okay catholicism and fundamentalism the attack on the attack on romanism by bible christians and that's another thing you know <laughs> you see these bible churches as if some other churches are not bible churches right okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Gonna say. yeah, Yeah, yeah. That's just a little piece yeah. of our library. Yeah, we probably two hundred and some books to the Tiffany Library.
0: Yeah, there's there's a lot. Yeah. Plus the plus the yeah. now well, plus
1: the yeah, we do sometimes. Yeah. And Donate, we donated. We donated uh, a lot of books
0: to, uh,
1: to, to it. Time. yeah. And uh, videos, TV, or whatever you call it. Yeah, The
0: yeah. Lamb Supper by Scott Hahn is a good, you know.
1: Best explanation I have ever seen uh, of the new was by uh yeah okay thank uh, you Bible. by
0: uh um, no she doesn't have we'll split it we we'll give it give it to somebody else. Not that I'm depriving my wife of water.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> quite uh I used to, uh I used to guard against that but after fifty years or so I figured oh. she's, She hasn't done it by now. She ain't going to do it.
1: (laughs) 63 years.
0: I wouldn't hardly blame her. (laughs) No, we got some.
1: Oh, that's good. Oh, I say The best explanation on a CD that I ever saw with uh, Dr. Donat New. You know what I mean? He's
0: oh, uh, Ray Grandi? Ray Grandi. Yeah. You ever heard him on He
1: What What is he the best? Huh? Dr. He he
0: is, he yeah, Dr. Ray. Mean,
1: he explained
0: Eucharist. the Eucharist. Yeah, well, he did. There's a film on it. I mean, we watch, yeah. CD, yeah. CD, yeah, CD right.
1: Okay.
0: okay. But uh, you were saying about. Uh, I'll get a little little bit in here before we quit, I guess, on uh, some of the things that you'll find in Scripture that are in the Catholic Church, and you get more of this, I'm sure. uh, Just read Revelation, and then walk into a Catholic Church and see what you see. Uh, It's the Lamb's Supper, Christ's revelation to John, when he says, come up here. Uh, And this is what Scott Hahn finds out, is that the Mass, in effect, is heaven on earth, and uh, you get all of these things in the Catholic Church. You get Sunday worship, the Lord's Day. I mean, that's created by the Catholic Church. It's not the Sabbath. It's the Lord's Day. In fact, Ashley... Yeah, that we don't celebrate the Sabbath. And the fact is, is that the early Christians celebrated both. I mean, the early Christians came over from Judaism. They were Jews, a lot of them. And they would go to the synagogue on Saturday, and then they would go to church on Sunday. You know, usually in somebody's home, they would have meetings, Christian meetings. They would go to church on Sunday. Paul preached in the synagogues. I mean, he was a Jew. You know, he got to, he got to go in the synagogues. He had the authority to do it. He went in there and preached. Uh, we have the high priest, Jesus, the altar, you find that in Revelation, priests in Revelation, vestments in Revelation, consecrated celibacy in, in Revelation. It's, it, 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 yeah, it's in there somewhere in Leviticus. Yeah. Yeah. Lampstands, you know, the menorah, for example, uh, incense, uh, books, scroll. The uh, Eucharistic host, the chalices, sign of the cross, the Tau, the Gloria, the Alleluia, the Amen, the Lamb of God, the Virgin Mary, Scripture, Universal. You'll find all of that in Revelation. And then, you know, read about Melchizedek, the first priest, offers bread and wine for Abraham. And then you find Jesus, you know, the, the Referring to the bread of the presence, because again you got the bread as you know the idea of an offering, uh, God's bread, and uh, we have the Catholic Church, the bread. You've got the manna from heaven; it's the bread. I mean, you you have a lot of this in the wine, uh, and then Revelation itself. You have this idea of the the church teaching, and it should that. Scripture is never to be interpreted by yourself alone. It's to be interpreted through the church, and the church has the authority to help interpret Scripture. And you get that. The fact is is that the Jews read Scripture all the time, and yet they did not see the New Testament revealed in it. And when, when do they see it? When do you get an example of it in the Bible? You get an example of it, on the road to Emmaus, when the two men are walking on the road, you know, and they're talking all about the fact that there was this man called Christ, he was crucified and everything, and Christ is walking along with them, and they're saying, you know, he says, tell me about it. And they're saying, you, mean, you don't know about this, everybody does, and so forth, and he starts revealing things to them about scripture, and then, of course, when he eats with them at the table, he disappears, you know, and they're they're breaking the bread, and then he disappears, And he revealed Scripture to him. He said he revealed Scripture for us. So you can't just pick up Scripture and expect to read it. I mean, it took Jesus Christ himself to reveal what it meant. And it takes the church and its whole history and its understanding of tradition to reveal what it means. You can't just pick up a Bible and become a Christian from reading it. The church concedes, yes, there is enough in the Bible to be a Christian, but if you just gave somebody, say from Mars, came down here, never heard of Christianity, you handed him a Bible, he's certainly not going to suddenly uh, be a, be a Christian, or even probably arrive at even one of the Protestant uh, interpretations of the Bible, because 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 we have be fair to Protestants, let's face, they took a lot of Catholicism with them when they left the church, they took a lot with them, and so that's why the Catholic Church concedes. That even though I mean uh, you know we say that uh, no one you know can be uh, can be justified can reach salvation except through the Catholic Church we still say that does that mean a Protestant can't go to no because they took a lot they took a lot with them so they are doing it through the church at least the basics of the church so I think Catholics are you know just by Conceding all of that, pretty charitable. I mean, it just... yeah, but I anyway, that's it. I hope that it's uh, been worthwhile.
2: I gotta run. God bless everyone.
0: Okay.
1: Thank you. Okay, take care. Have a good day. I
0: okay. hope that. Sets up the idea that when you study scripture, you can rely on it, because you can't just use it by itself to just say this is in scripture, therefore it's true. If somebody asked you how you know, say because the Catholic Church told me so. And how do how do they know? Because Christ founded his church. And as far as the Eucharist goes, you know they.
1: Protestants will say it's a remembrance. It's not. Christ didn't mean that when he said, You remembrance of me. He didn't mean that now. And that one. so many people, you know, his own disciples, his own followers got up and left because they couldn't. How could you eat my body?
0: I'm glad you brought that up, Lynn, because I forgot to get to that. That, that, that is called, there's a word for it, and I tried to look it up in the dictionary, but it's called am, am, amnesis. An, amnesis, that uh, it's a Jewish uh, procedure or you know, a Jewish uh, doing. It's taking the past, especially as they do with the Passover, it's taking the past and bringing the past into the present in a in a realistic way. It's like when they take the Passover, they go back and they ask their children, you know, why is this night so important and so forth, and they're reliving what happened to the Jews back at that past, and they're taking that through ritual. And human beings need ritual, believe me, because it, the fact is is that that's one of the problems with our society today because without religion and without the ritual and so forth that goes with it, we don't see the reality of the sin and the suffering and the evil and so forth in the world uh, as we should see it. And that's what the church sees. The church is realistic. Religion, especially the Catholic religion, is a realistic religion. It sees the world as it really is and it teaches people to deal with that world as it really is. And uh, secularism teaches that the world is some kind of a goofy nice place and everything else, and it certainly isn't. And uh, <laughs> but at any rate, that's what the mass does. It takes what happened into the pa- in the past and it brings it into the present and represents it in an unbloody way. So we're taking what ha- we're not re-crucifying Christ, but we're taking what happened in the past representing it in an unbloody way, and applying it to the people. You know, when you walk into a church, you know, you're walking east when you're walking toward the altar. We're proceeding, we're in a procession, and we're walking east. And heaven is coming down to touch the earth at the altar. And the earth is in the process of, you know, changing. It's passing away. And we as Christians are moving to the new Jerusalem, as you were talking about Jerusalem. That's where we're going, and we're on our journey there. And that's why we proceed into the church as we do, and that's why we're walking east, and that's why the procession goes down. And that's why processions are important to Catholics, and we should have more of them. We should have more processions outside. They used to have a lot more, and uh, those kind of things. That's called anamnesis. It's bringing the past into the present, making it real, representing it again so people can see and understand it and know their history and be connected to each other and have a community and be a people and a country and a nation and move forward. That's what religion does. And without it, the country starts to fall apart. And that's what's happening here in our country with the separation of church and state. Because the yeah. church and state are not separated.
1: Separations of Church and state, and our founder was not to give religious freedom. It was keep the the government free
0: of religious. Freedom. Yeah, Jefferson, Jefferson and Madison were concerned that the church would interfere with the country that they with their this constitution and so forth they created, and they stuck that in there in order to protect their constitution and their country from the church. You talking about it was not there to protect the church from the government. People don't understand that.
1: Talking about um, body, um, this is my body, this is my blood. When I was talking to my daughter, she said, "I don't believe in in the, um, the Eucharist because I don't want to eat the body and blood of Jesus."
0: This is what the Romans said about the Christians back at Roman times. They called the Christians cannibals. So we know that the Christians were doing it back at that time. And they were connected. This was before the Bible was even written. This was in the first 10 years. And if they were doing that, we know that Christ told them to do that. And they understood what Christ meant or they wouldn't have been doing it. And they were, they were persecuted for it. I'm trying to
1: get at is Jesus was so wise that We don't have to eat flesh and drink blood. Mm-hmm. We, he gave us a means to to in, in bread and wine, exactly to get to that point, exactly. So it's sure if I had to eat body and if I had to eat bread and or meat and, and raw meat and, and blood every day, I wouldn't get there either. Yeah, yeah, but he gave us a, a mean exactly. To not do that.
0: Exactly. No, I wasn't hollering at you. I was just, just saying in, in the sense that, that the no, people, the Romans and the people that say that, you know, that don't know what they're talking about. But you're right. He gave it to us in an unbloody way to to continue on that sacrifice. This is a, a book you should read then for sure, is Grant uh, Petrie, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, because mm-hmm. it tells exactly that the Eucharist goes right back to the Jews right back to the Jewish roots, right back to the bread of the presence and the show bread.
1: It a picture of all of the people. Yeah. Um, when Jesus, uh, when people objected to what Jesus said, you must eat my body and no. My My flesh. Yeah, flesh. And they flesh, the, they really rebelled, he said,
0: in the Right, they they left, and he even asked the disciples, he said, are you going to leave too? And they said, well, where would we go? <laughs> you know, they didn't know what to do. But the thing is, is that, you know, he didn't, if, if it was just symbolic, Jesus could have stepped in and said, you don't understand, I'm just talking in symbols, but he didn't do that. He let him go, and he, and he kept saying it over and over, and, and, and he used if you look back and you use the words he used, he used the words in Aramaic. In those words in Aramaic, when, when he said eat, the word in Aramaic means chew or knock. That's what it means. That's not the word of symbols. <laughs> he meant eat, he meant chew, use your mouth, is what he meant. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You had to eat the flesh and the, you know, the lamb if you go to the temple. Uh, at Passover, two hundred and fifty thousand lambs were slaughtered there, and the people—how did they take their lamb home? They had to take it home and cook it, and they had to eat it. They could roast it; they roast it over a fire. You could put it in an oven, but you had to eat it. You had to eat the flesh of the lamb in order for the, the pass for God to pass over. That's what they had to do. They had to put the blood up and so forth. Well, look at the temple. I mean, if you, you look at the old temple and, and so forth and get these, this, this uh, look at the gutters in the temple. My God, they were three or four feet deep. Blood came down, running down there. They were about from here to that wall wide and about this deep. They were filled with blood. 250,000 lambs were slaughtered, and the people came to get them. And the priests had to pick them out and make sure there weren't blemishes on them and all of those kinds of things. And then they took them home. How did they take them home? they stuck a stake up through the lamb from the hind end up through the, the front, and then a cross piece through the, up by the legs and put it over their shoulders. And what does that represent? A cross, I mean, that's all there. I mean, you're gonna learn that when you read, you know, the- the well,
1: study. think it, the study. Yeah. Baldwin, and what, the, what does the name of the book mean? Mm-hmm.
0: and it's crazy enough but like he points out here in revelation you have all the beasts in revelation but who is in command in revelation who can who can face all those beasts of the world that attack us that we see going on right now to overcome that sin and everything else the lamb can there is the lamb the one of the most you know peaceful and so forth of of uh, animals, and yet it's the lamb that is, in effect, the supreme, if you want to call it beast, of the Revelation. It's the lamb that can oppose all of those horrible things that are talked about in Revelation. It's the lamb that saves us. So it's interesting. I mean, you know, it all comes together. Catholicism has got so much in it, and this is what I'm telling you, people are more important than you think you are. Learn as much as you possibly can and hand it on. That's what you know. tradition is. That's what we do. We have children, and we hand on our tradition, and then they hand it on, and that's how life goes on. And when that's broken and lost, we're lost. we
1: are taken up very well. Well, that's true. I almost feel like... Yeah.
3: And, and I was listening to your show, uh podcast, and you talked about this. And I was reading some other articles, and uh, that is a very good journal, first. I mean, they got me started on it. Um, but I was thinking that this is truly the age of the, the laity. I mean, if there ever was one, the laity really has to, you know, and, and I just you know myself, first of all, poorly catechized. And, and, and it's awful, you know, and I started last uh Uh, study with the analogy of going to her uh uh, family reunion and how how out of it I felt and I couldn't wait to get out of there I love them all but they were all engrossed in all of these stories because they had such a great history and roots with with everybody and I didn't have that and so it's very easy for me just to wander away or my mind to wander because I had no had no roots and so you know i I said this when we started the bible and the church fathers that we really need to establish those roots again we really need to catechize ourselves and others um, and we need to learn this stuff and you know from my feedback from the last study is that everybody was overwhelmed by how much we have to have to learn but everybody had a lot of enthusiasm and everybody had kind of a uh uh unpleasant feeling of the way the country's gone maybe the way our church is going and 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 confused and uh, um, just like those those uh, monks and, and uh, that kept society going uh, uh, retained what was learned I mean not just not just the religion our, our religion and our our Bible. I also, I never read Dante. I never, I'm, as an older man now, I'm trying to catch up and, and learn all these things. I never, I never listened up or read about Aristotle, ethics, uh, uh, Plato, all this beautiful stuff is being suppressed. Uh, I don't know on purpose or what, it's just not being taught and no one thinks anymore. And so my motivation here is, you know, I'm just the facilitator. I don't even claim to be an, an expert on anything. Uh, but I am, Enthusiastic about us coming together and us learning and going out and and, and spreading this this information to other people. Um, it's important. I, I started teaching. Uh, well, I've done it before. Faith formation. I have the eighth graders now, and even though they're at that stage where they have the uh, uh, the focus of a nap, um, <laughs> you could see when you start talking about certain things their eyes opened up and I, I, and I'm no great speaker for about a half an hour. I had them so engaged and I said, they're really thirsty for this. They're really thirsty for the truth. And, um, uh, it, it's important that we all as laity, uh, um, learn all we can learn and do the best we can stumble through it. some of us. um, obviously you guys do a beautiful job and you did a great, beautiful job today. And, um, you know, I've had a long day, and I was just totally engaged.
1: That's and because he practices every week.
3: I know. Well, he practices his whole
1: life. They all been practiced their whole life.
0: I, I wish. But you're right. right. The kids need a... I'm sorry. I'll, I'll let you talk and just say... I just wanted to comment. He's right. The kids need a sense of belonging. They, they need to know that they belong to something. That's, that's, what, that's what enthusiasm, that is. Is And they don't have it. Thank
1: you. That's why... The power of the Latin man, which, you knows I don't want to get on there. Yeah.
0: Go ahead, you were talking,
1: Anne. I, I really think that our prayers fall down with all this. You know, right now at St. Mary's, we have one Bible study the next all and we do a good job. I mean, we have a great discussion group. And, and you've added people each year, but that's it. That's only other than RTIA. There's no other adult education. And I think that he really fall down on that. I had a terrible uh, faith base when it came to my own children and being able to teach them. I didn't have the skills to do it. I didn't have, I wasn't taught. I mean, my parents, we went to church every Sunday. And I went to see David, but we didn't. We didn't really get into things, you know. And so when it came to teaching my own children, I, I don't think we we were ready. Oh, sorry. And I didn't well, think we were ready because we hadn't been taught. And I hope we're doing a better job of that now. But I don't. I mean, mm-hmm. when I see our adult education, I don't feel like that. Well, RCIA too is not not standardized to the point where i was kind of told at one point why do you have them have the catechism that just confuses them why do you teach something without a catechism i
0: well i thank tony for the compliment for to, he gave to lynn and i but the reason that we became learned is not because we learned all the stuff our life is because we had to teach it yeah and there's nothing like learning right. when you have to teach it exactly. <laughs> yeah i mean there were many a times the night before i was desperately looking through <laughs> stuff Sometimes and everything you know, else because i had a question that was asked me the week before and i was trying to find the answer to it and you'd be amazed at all the stuff you find going through trying to find answers and stuff like they give it to other people by the way so we learned
1: Scott yeah, yeah. We,
0: yeah because one of the parishioners came to rcia yes got, um yeah dr puckett yeah dr Puckett. dr puckett came, we had a lot of people that came to our rcia class and then they came more than one year and then you know they would come and we would tell them okay now, you now you're going to be teaching too because you know in other words we'll give you something to do We we had guys that said they couldn't get up in front of an audience. They couldn't talk. They couldn't speak, and they did wonderful jobs. You know, they got up there and did great jobs. Everybody can contribute. Everybody can. There's no doubt about it. And they do it. We had them do it in their own way. We had one guy talk all about hockey. (laughs) He used hockey as a means of explaining what he wanted to about the scripture. So, but anyway, Doctor Puckett. I mean, here's a man who went through Catholic grade school. Catholic high school and Catholic college, and he couldn't defend his faith against these various other doctors, Protestant doctors that were always making fun of him. And he came to our RCI and he came up to me after you know one of the classes, and he said, for the first time in my life, he says I can defend the faith. And we were talking about Scott Hahn and some of these other people, and he put up the money to have Tim Staples from Catholic Answers come to Epiphany. We had him come twice. And then he put up the money that Scott Hahn, he donated a lot to uh, the St. Paul Society was Scott Hahn's, uh, you know, charity. And we called up, I called up, uh, got hold of Mrs. Hahn, and she said that, that, you know, he was filled up, he couldn't come. And I said, "Well, that's bad." Doctor Putka is going to be very disappointed. And she says, "Doctor Putka," and then she says, "Let me check with Scott." Yeah. <laughs> she said, "I'll call you back the next day." I get a phone call, and he goes, "He can come after all." <laughs> so we had Scott here, and all we charged people was ten dollars. That included three sessions of Scott plus their meal for ten bucks. <laughs> Pretty good. Well, done. and
1: we might talk about. The name of the book.
0: Oh, the Perusia.
1: Yeah, what does Perusia mean?
0: It just means the the uh second coming, the apocalypse. You know what what Protestants call the rapture. What it means.
1: Oh, we yeah, have it
0: here
3: next. Wait, John,
1: go to... yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Well, maybe we better wrap this up. Yeah, we better wrap it up. Yeah.
1: yeah.
3: I
0: hope everybody got something out of it. That was good. Well, like you said, why, why not end it with uh, St. Michael?
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Especially
1: today. Because the church is going through its trial, its agony in the garden right now, right? And the first piece and everything else. And it has to, I guess.
0: Okay. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the heavenly hosts, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all evil spirits who roam through the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen.